Welcome to another episode of the U.S.-China Salon. Today, we journey through the corridors of power and the shifting sands of global alliance, from NATO's expanding influence and potential challenges to the assertive stance of China on the world stage. This episode promises a panoramic view of current global tensions and potential futures. With insight from our known expert Stuart Gottlieb of Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, we'll explore strategies of major players and how their decisions might shape the world of tomorrow. In light of evolving global geopolitics, with the emergence of new alliances like the AUKUS and the Quad, it becomes imperative to understand the role of existing alliances like NATO. Originally created as a bulwark against the threat of the Soviet Union, NATO has transformed significantly over the years, even after the dissolution of its original adversary. It has grown, added members, and seems to be increasing its sphere of influence. So we'd like to know, given the increasing influence and expansion of NATO, what are the potential implications for global governance, and how does this affect the perception of Western leadership globally? You know, there's nothing wrong with countries having military alliances. And the United States has bilateral uh, alliances with Japan, with the Philippines, with South Korea, mm-hmm. um, with Australia. Some of them are like multilateral now, the AUKUS agreement with the United States, Australia, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, and the UK. Uh, there's a quad now, you know, United States, Australia, India, Japan. I think South Korea is sort of a silent partner of what is really a quint nowadays. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing wrong with countries having mutual interest and, and viewing mutual, mutual threats sort of coming together and saying, hey, we're going to form, you know, kind of a partnership, a cooperation. Um, NATO is a different story, though. Um, NATO was built to prevent a Soviet army, Red Army invasion of Western Europe starting in 1949. Mm-hmm. And by the time the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, NATO ceased to have a functional rationale for, it, for maintaining its existence. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, it built itself up. It started to expand. It went from 16 members uh, in 1989 to now 33 members, mm-hmm. um, including former Soviet satellite countries, if not outright, mm-hmm. you know, traditional parts of what Russia would consider Russia, the three Baltic republics, um, you know, Slovenia, Slovakia. Uh, um, and now it's looking out into Asia, and I can't imagine that the Philippines and Korea and Japan are going to become formal members of, uh, of NATO, because it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, without changing the name and acronym somehow. Uh, if I'm China, I'm Russia, I'm India, I'm the Gulf states, I'm Brazil, I'm, any, I'm African countries that, by the way, African countries, which also were part of NATO interventions and things, um, and Western interventions, and not just Western interventions, but Western humanitarian missions that then led to the capture of leaders that got put on trial in The Hague and in Western judicial institutions, you know, and then NATO is now this military enforcement body of this international law created by the West. And how many Western leaders ended up as as war criminals in The Hague? Zero. You get a bunch of African dictators that way. You get some Serbian dictators. I'm not saying that these were good people that didn't deserve their day in court. But if you're the rest of the world and you say the West has created these institutions, they created the political institutions through the UN, they create the economic institutions through the WTO, they create the international legal institutions um, through the Hague and the world, you know, the, uh, the International Criminal Court and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and now they have NATO, which becomes the global military organization. And it was just said last week, um, I believe it was the, I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been the, the I think it was the South Korean military uh, chief, I believe, or it might be someone else, um, 
who referred to uh, the mission of NATO to uphold the, 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 uh, the liberal, the rules-based international order. Mm -hmm. If you're China, you're Russia, you're India, you're Brazil, you're any other country out there in the world, and NATO is now a military body that's upholding a world government that doesn't exist because there is no world government, the world is governed by anarchy mm -hmm. and nation states are primary actors, that makes the West the government and the police force mm -hmm. and the judge, jury, and executioner of the world order. And I think if NATO starts turning into that, it's going to be a huge pushback to that. Mm -hmm. um, it, I don't, I'm not saying China can create an equivalent of NATO the way, you know, Russia once created the Warsaw Treaty Pact, mm -hmm. right. uh, which was literally created in opposition to NATO. And, it, you know, it was a bunch of, you know, the Eastern European governments and countries uh, that were just under Soviet you know, military and political control anyhow. <clears throat> but um, there's no alternative to NATO in the world that's going to sort of combat NATO on, a, on, a, on an even keel. Um, that being said, that shouldn't be, that should not be our, our, um, our, our benchmark of good governance. Mm -hmm. Good governance should not be we're governing with the biggest military organization and the biggest firepower and cruise missiles and nuclear missiles and drones and a whole bunch of high-tech and satellite-based missiles or whatever it is that can threaten the whole rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So you all have to sort of respect us for all of our power. No, that's not a sustainable leadership. Power is only one half mm -hmm. of leadership. Mm -hmm. Respectability, partnership, others benefiting from the partnership and the cooperation, that's mm -hmm. the most important part of sustainable leadership. And the more the rest of the world views that they're under the tutelage and control of strong economic and military um, uh, powers and alliances, the more there's going to just be a natural tendency to push back. Mm -hmm. They might not have the power to you know, engage in some kind of direct military conflict because they don't. I'm not saying it's a good idea anyway. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I mean, didn't work well for Germany, Japan, and, and, uh, and Italy in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I'm not saying there's going to be a military confrontation anytime soon, but if we're talking about legitimacy to be a global leader and govern, mm -hmm. if NATO wants to become the world's collective security organization mm -hmm. and you have to be a liberal democracy, part of the liberal rules-based system in order to be part of it, and if you're not part of that, you're an outlier and you're potentially in the sights and the scopes and the surveillance of that system, mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty dangerous way to have your leadership, uh, you know, uh, the main part of your leadership, yeah. And NATO, I think, is really going in that direction. Um, you know, you want to expand other countries, you want to create more democracies, you know, you want to expand the European Union, which is an economic union, go do it. You know, if they, they want to have military, you know, alliances within certain states or whatever, you know, have that. But to cre create a global military organization that's both now European and Asian, um, run by the United States with all the military power in the world, um, that's not sustainable. The program delves into NATO's evolving role as a military alliance and its expansion into Asia. Stewart discusses the implications of NATO's actions for China-U.S. relations and global governance. While acknowledging the importance of military alliance, the professor highlights concerns about NATO's overreach and its potential to become a global military organization governed by the West. The program concludes with a call for sustainable leadership based on respect, partnership, and cooperation, rather than relying solely on military power. So how do you think NATO should reorganize itself or reposition itself to fit today's agenda? I don't think it's going to. I think it, it has this new, uh, this new power, uh, newfound power after the war in Ukraine, which is fine. Um, it's more united. 
But I think the biggest, if my article makes the point, um, the biggest uh, mistake was overreaching ideological hubris and overreach after the Cold War ended. Mm -hmm. And I think we're making that same mistake now by expanding, expanding NATO even more, mm -hmm. maybe expanding it into the Western Pacific, the Indo-Pacific. Um, that to me is just dividing the world from West and non-West. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more the non-West gets lectured by the West, and now the West says, and we also have this big, bad, and expanding military organization. Mm -hmm. um, I just see that as something that's sustainable for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have the legitimacy and buy-in mm -hmm. that you need for good global governance. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so my advice would be uh, you know, demilitarize NATO to mm -hmm. a certain extent. I mean, the United States is still 80% of NATO defense. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, have the Europeans play a role. Bring it back to the core of Western Europeans. You know, don't leave the Eastern Europeans out of some kind of, you know, feeling that they're protected. Uh, you can do that. But this, this idea of continually expanding the number of countries, mm -hmm. then it, it's attempting, if you all remember the League of Nations um, after World War I, I mean, it's, gonna, it's trying to become more of a League of Nations mm -hmm. of collective security. And if you become a democracy like us, um, you know, you can join it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's a mistake. That's an overreach. Mm, I see. I mean, China has been responding to, to this Western influence, right? I mean, China has been seeking out alliances and partnerships to counteract this Western influence, you know, notably its comprehensive strategic partnership with Russia, um, its foray into Middle East politics, you know, brokering peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, and investments in so many other parts of the world. Now, do you think these actions are more of a reactive or a proactive approach in how China wants to position itself in this new world order? And what do you think would be the U.S.'s response and ultimate you know, outcome yeah. and how you think that would clash? Yeah, I don't think it's reactive in the sense that we've had this world order since 1945. Mm -hmm. It's not a secret. China decided, you know, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping decided to open up to the West. Uh, eventually, China en enters uh, and China was a part of the U.N. Uh, Security Council system anyway, mostly because of, uh, of Chiang Kai-shek and, uh, you know, the early days of, uh, of the Chinese Civil War before the Chinese Communist Revolution. But then China, you know, the Communists took over and they were, uh, they ended up as one of the P5 mm -hmm. on the UN Security Council. Um, China, you know, uh, since Deng Xiaoping and, uh, and, and definitely since, uh, you know, Hu Jintao, Jintao and, and the entrance into the WTO, um, um, they know what the world order looks like. So the idea that it's a reaction to that, I don't. I think that's not a way I would view it just because it's a 75-year-old system that China was increasingly interested in becoming a part of. So I think it's not, not reactive to that. I think it's proactive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's proactive in the sense that China believes it's time for it to exert itself as an equal player on the world stage. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not saying, you know, uh, we're going to go to war with the West and not saying we don't appreciate the West. It's not saying we don't appreciate that the West led us into Western, particularly economic institutions that led to all this tremendous uh, Chinese growth and success. Um, but China has a different vision for the world. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I think the West has to understand, and like I said, my John Kennedy quote from before, a world make the world safe for diversity. Mm -hmm. We have to respect other political systems that have a different way of viewing the current world order and how they see the world order in the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, I think China ultimately, it's not about overtaking the West and you know, making the West uh, you know, subsidiary. It's about coexisting um, and maintaining decent cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think from the Western perspective, and I worked in the Senate for five years, I know the US uh, political system and the foreign policy mindset pretty well. Anything less than we're gonna join the West and we view Western liberalism as the future is seen as a threat. Mm -hmm. They're very reluctant to accept any notion that there's gonna be partnerships, other systems, there's gonna be Uyghur detention camps, you know, there's gonna be Tibet, um, there's gonna be surveillance states on their own people, there's gonna be the use of new technologies mostly to, to maintain a police totalitarian state, and the West saying, yeah, we're gonna do business with them and, and have even greater partnerships moving forward. That just rubs the West the wrong way and they view that as something that's not very acceptable mm -hmm. um, without recognizing that other systems view Western openness and mm -hmm. principles like free speech and other aspects of progressive liberalism as equally an affront to political cultures that exist in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's, I think, John Kennedy was smart enough to know that meaning the world's safe for diversity means truly respecting others, even if we don't always, you know, we can respect others' existences without always agreeing with the way that they govern themselves and how they treat their own people. Mm -hmm. Because the world is made up of actors. Mm -hmm. Those actors are primarily states. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna be now, that's gonna be into the future. That's world politics. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, so I think that's the, the it's China exerting itself. It, I mean, this is a dirty word nowadays, nationalism, you know, Chinese nationalism. Mm -hmm. It's not a dirty word historically. Mm -hmm. Nationalism just means protecting your own territorial integrity, your own sovereignty, your own political system, your own people. Mm -hmm. um, that's what nationalism tends to mean. Mm -hmm. When it gets into the realm of hyper-nationalism like it did around World War I, you do see wars break out, bad things happen, really horrible ideologies can come out of you know, hyper-nationalism. But nationalism itself, American is a, America is a very nationalist country. It's out there in the world defending its own nationalism all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it likes to couch it in the terms of, well, it's also good for the world, and yeah, the world all agrees with this, and it's all for the benefit of mankind, you know? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, every country ultimately has its own na nationalism, its own territorial integrity, sovereignty, and, and interest uh, at, at stake. Um, so I think China is doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, my own critique of it would be, I believe China might have gotten a little, I, this is a kind of a cliche these days, got out over its skis a little bit. Mm -hmm. It viewed the war on terrorism, it viewed the global financial collapse and said now is the time. Uh, Deng Xiaoping had that famous line, uh, the way for China to develop and advance and become the dominant country in the world is to hide our strength and bide our time. Mm -hmm. Hide our strength, bide our time. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of a 25 year principle from Deng Xiaoping all the way to Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping says, it's, it, we no longer need to hide our strength. We no longer need to bide our time. Well, let me reverse that. He said, we no longer need to bide our time. The time is now. America is descending, declining. Um, and we no longer need to hide our strength. Mm -hmm. As secondarily, my view of this is, it's a little premature. Mm -hmm. A lot of countries, a lot of civilizations, uh, a lot of alliances have bet against the West mm -hmm. and bet against the United States and decided it was time mm -hmm. to take a shot. Uh, that was true in World War II, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, it was time to take a shot. And you know, uh, the West, again, the West is always viewed by other political systems. Because the West is, uh, you might have noticed living here and being Americans, that the West is a very messy system. <laughs> to us, it's a messy disaster from election to election. One side is crying, one side is cheering, and then everyone has to wait two years or four years to try to get even. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, lamenting all the horrible things that are happening under the political leadership of the other side. Mm -hmm. if, you think it, if you think it looks messy and chaotic and in many ways disastrous 
to us mm -hmm. as Americans, think about how that looks to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So if you're some country someplace and you see the West, you know, just doing nutty things uh, to itself, engaging in bad wars, let's say, in Iraq, for example, running an economic you know, uh, bank-led business model that, that, that tanks the global economy in 2008, um, you know, and then you see it boomeranging from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. You, know. Um, you, know, you say, how can that be a sustainable political system? You know, why not? <laughs> why is this not my time to take a shot? Saddam Hussein tried to take a shot and take Kuwait uh, in the summer of 1990, figuring in the United States the Cold War was over. The United States didn't have the stomach to fight military battles. The whole United States now didn't want to, you know, be engaged in foreign policy anymore. He was wrong about that. You know, you go back to World War II, obviously, you go back to uh, uh, Al-Qaeda decided to attack the United States, thinking U.S. would withdraw from the Middle East and sort of take all its troops and take its ball and go home. That didn't happen, for better or worse. Uh, the United States maintained a forwardly deployed presence. It knocked out al-Qaeda in large part. It knocked out its offshoot ISIS in large part. A lot of tragedies happened uh, in between. But they were bet they, if you read the bin Laden propaganda, you read the al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader propaganda, it's all, and you read people like Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah from Hezbollah, uh, let alone the Japanese militarists, the German militarists. Uh, um, uh, there was a book called The Decline of the West uh, that was written in 1905 uh, by a Prussian uh, author. Um, uh, it's all a spiderweb theory. And Hassan Nasrallah, this Hezbollah leader, sort of put it into, into print um, that the West kind of looks strong from the outside, mm -hmm. you know, like a, like a powerful spiderweb. But you just start picking away at some of the strands, and it's really soft and weak, and it's always fighting with itself. It has no real martial belief. It has no underpinning nationalism mm -hmm. and things like that. So movements and countries have taken shots at the West and at the United States periodically over time, most expressively in World War I and World War II, but also Saddam Hussein, also Al-Qaeda. Um, and the West manages to regroup itself with all these fights and all these, these chaos that goes on in the political system. Somehow they get united on certain things. They innovate. They adapt better than any other system that's ever existed in the world. Um, you know, one economic model starts failing, they bring in a whole fresh set of ideas, they try that for two years, mm -hmm. then they try something else for four years. You think Xi Jinping is going to listen to that about their real estate bubble or about different aspects of, uh, of the Chinese economy overextending itself? Um, no. They're, he they're hearing just one argument, one certainty, one future, one belief, one Xi, one China dream. The United States fights over the American dream mm -hmm. all the time huge differences over what that even means. Mm -hmm. China can only have one view of the China dream under Xi Jinping. That goes for Putin, it goes for the Iranian mullahs, it goes for North Korea, it goes for these other kinds of political systems. So China made a bold gamble, in my opinion. Xi Jinping was probably the right guy for the job. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the things that he has written and said about the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. everyone should learn that. They're not shy about what brought down communism in 1989. Mm -hmm. They like the economic openness, which was the perestroika mm -hmm. of, of Mikhail Gorbachev. But Gorbachev also had a glasnost, mm -hmm. political reform, political openness part of, of his program in the mid-1980s. China learned the lessons of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Tiananmen Square came soon after uh, the Berlin Wall collapsed. Mm -hmm. It was not by accident that they shut down all political dissent. They said, we will maintain openness and cooperation with the West. We will not politically orient ourselves and face the West like Gorbachev mm -hmm. 
promised briefly, just briefly, I will open up a little bit. He cracked that window of totalitarian political leadership, mm -hmm. and a whirlwind ensued. And 18 months later, the entire Soviet Union was gone. Mm -hmm. China, to this day, says, that's not happening here. Mm -hmm. Nothing the West is going to do, no theories of Western liberal uh, peace theory or liberal progress theory. The whole Western concept is if you open up economically, then you're going to get a bigger middle class. That bigger middle class is going to want to have more of a say politically. Mm -hmm. And eventually, a closed political system is going to have to open up to accommodate a bigger middle class, a more educated middle class that doesn't want to live under a dictatorship anymore. Mm -hmm. That's liberal philosophy 101. Mm -hmm. That's the whole principle behind liberal economics marrying with mm -hmm. liberal politics. China is an expert, or has been an expert, on the market-based liberal economic side of mm -hmm. building a huge middle class, a big financial uh, behemoth, um, they are not moving in the direction of political liberalization. Mm -hmm. And therein lies, in my opinion, the next 10, 20 years, the biggest problem for China mm -hmm. is that is a huge disadvantage. They see it as an advantage. All closed systems always do. Mm -hmm. We control our people. We control our, our communications. We control our politics. We control our policy. You know, it's all five-year plans under Stalin. It's all, you know, uh, seven-year plans under Mao. Mm -hmm. um, but what does that get you? It doesn't, nothing ever gets refreshed and rebooted. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the meantime, the West with its Liz Truss coming to, you know, getting, knocking off uh, Boris Johnson and, you know, Trump getting knocked off by Biden and maybe Trump's gonna knock Biden off in 2024. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see if that happens. Um, these are refreshing moments. Mm -hmm. They're not steps backward as China would see them. And China does see them as steps backward. Oh, they, you know, and, the American experiment has always been like this. I have great uh, um, things written by the European monarchies uh, in the early parts of the 19th century about the American political system in the, just in like 1801, 1802, 1803. It just looked like a haphazard disaster. You know, there were no controls. It was just like some loose, crazy system. 230, 230 years, 223 years later, uh, it's, still, it's still that same haphazard kind of nutty, crazy system. Um, my money is still on the Western democracies able to right their ships and bring in new ideas and innovate mm -hmm. than a China model that just has a plan of global dominance in 10 years mm -hmm. because they just see the West as inevitable in decline. I see. Oh, well, I actually have two follow-up questions. The first one is you mentioned China and how their system doesn't change and doesn't adapt. I mean, for the past 20, 30 years, I mean, that's served, that's been a certain advantage to China, right? That's why it's expanded so fast in so many ways and it's and has brought it to the world's second largest economy. Now, do you see the system kind of breaking down now, or where do you see the system kind of falling apart? Yeah, no, so that's a really great question, and it's a very East Asian question, by the way, because a lot of the political theory and IR theory stuff, and particularly the IPE, the political economy models, mm -hmm. um, about the Asian tigers that grew in, during the Cold War, you know, Korea, Taiwan, you know, mm -hmm. South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, um, uh, um, Singapore. Um, and, and one of the great political scientists, Samuel Huntington, wrote a, a really fascinating book uh, called Political Order in Changing Societies. Mm -hmm. And the argument is you can build and create a, develop, a, a developed country and a developed economy and a good middle class mm -hmm. through pretty autocratic authoritarian measures. Mm -hmm. You know, you saw like in Pinochet, you know, even in Latin America, you saw these dictatorships in Argentina, in Brazil, in, uh, um, in Chile. Uh, you saw the dictatorships in South Korea and Taiwan and Thailand and, and Singapore. 
um, Philippines. Uh, and, but there's a part two to that theory, which the West recognizes, I think, a, a country like China is not well recognizing, mm -hmm. is that when you develop that middle class, when you develop that more educated political system, um, you, there's a struggle to maintain that. Um, but in a democracy, it gets overthrown and becomes more liberal and more advanced mm -hmm. uh, and more market-based politically and economically mm -hmm. um, and more sustainable over time with much more legitimacy built into the people. Um, so I would say from a Huntington point of view, yes, China did do the right thing in terms of its own development. It needed to have a very tight structure, a very tight political leadership. It had a bunch of purges, you know, we might not have recognized them that much, very Mao-like uh, purges that occurred over time. Um, even much more recently, you know, Xi Jinping has purged a lot of people over the last 10 years. Um, but if they don't adapt, if they try to maintain the model that got them to development, there's no post-development future for them. You know, and my view is, and, and you're seeing it on the economic side, because they're even moving away from their free market um, mentality mm -hmm. that got them to be number two in the world, that got them to have everyone had projections of China was going to surpass the U.S. GDP. You, want, you look at this stuff, it's fascinating. I do this in my American foreign policy class. Um, I look at the, at the projections made by the smartest people in the world mm -hmm. starting in, in like 1997, 1998. Mm -hmm. According to like, for example, Goldman Sachs, by 2008, China was supposed to have the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. Not PPP, but the real one, nominal GDP. Mm -hmm. It was it was still only about 50% by then. Mm -hmm. So then they recalculated and said by 2017, China's going to have the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, Goldman Sachs had to recalculate its entire model and say it might not be until 235 and maybe not ever. Mm -hmm. This is how the smart consulting companies and all the big PhD brains and you know, people like you, you know, going to grad school for, uh, for uh, you know, uh, global finance and things like that, you, know, you view the world in with static data. Mm -hmm. China is growing at 7% a year. The West is growing at three, average 3.5% a year. So it's just a matter of time where that diagram splits and China, the inevitability of China surpassing the Western economies mm -hmm. in 1997 was inevitable. Mm -hmm. But it's not inevitable. There's so much more involved. There's just happenstance. There's, there's diseases. But more importantly, there's the differences in the political system, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And democracies are going to have their bad moments. They're going to have their great recessions, like in 2008. Mm -hmm. But they have their mo And look at post-COVID. Everyone thought China, this is the China model you're, you're referencing. Mm -hmm. The top-down model, strict control, lockdowns, you know, look where they are. They're, the West, which except, I mean, the West had some lockdowns, too, that were critiqued. And a lot of populist right-wing movements were very opposed to that stuff, which I think is healthy, by the way, to have these different viewpoints. Um, and everyone thought the West was, and the United States in particular, had the worst COVID response out of anywhere in the world. I wrote two articles for the Hill newspaper mm -hmm. uh, about how the United States led the COVID response. Yes, it had a high death rate, yeah, but this is, this is a disease. I mean, the flu kills a lot of people. You know, there's a very contagious disease that kills a lot of people. Um, but the United States and the West in general, Western Europeans, made a choice to balance government strict controls with free markets and the society freedoms that are core parts of Western society. Mm -hmm. China maybe doesn't appreciate that. Maybe other closed systems recognize that they, you know, they get told to stay inside for two weeks straight. They stay inside for two weeks straight. Try telling that to people in South Boston. You know, <laughs> you're locked down for two weeks. It's not going to happen. So these are different political cultures. And I think the West ultimately, ironically, out of COVID, um, came out much stronger. Um, 
and now China still has these pockets of outbreaks and things because they never got the immunity. They never, they didn't develop as good vaccines mm -hmm. uh, as the West did. Um, and I think that's very telling on what the, on what the future holds. Um, I think in a healthy way in a lot of ways, because I do think there is a competition between China and the West, and there's a lot of corporate espionage. There's a lot of, you know, and that's just, I don't, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I mean, that, that's almost a uh, compliment. You know, you're doing so much better than me technologically and economically. We are going to spy on you and steal your stuff. Um, that just shows that the good ideas are being emulated. Um, and then there's more competition out there to build the, be the better mousetrap next. But I think politically, that's, that could be true as well. I think China is going to be kicking and screaming about breaking down its, its very rigid political system. But at a certain point, I don't think it's going to have a choice. It's going to face that Soviet 1988-1989 moment mm -hmm. where they realize they're losing the competition. Mm -hmm. They're losing the competition economically. And once they lose the, the competition economically, they're not going to be able to fund mm -hmm. their, their system anymore and keep the political opposition sated, mm -hmm. if you know what I, I mean. Yeah. The diverging perspectives within the U.S. political system often reflects the complexities and nuances of dealing with a rising superpower like China. Therefore, I am interested in knowing your view on how different political leaderships in the United States might shape this relationship. Furthermore, I'd like to understand the implications of different economic strategies the U.S. might adopt in relations to China. Given the current geopolitical tensions, how might the policy stance towards China differ under potential future leadership from both the Democratic and Republican parties in the U.S.? In addition, could you explain the implications of various economic strategies such as decoupling and de-risking in the context of the U.S.-China relationship? Another great question. Um, I think it's telling mm -hmm. that the one issue that everyone could unite around mm -hmm. is China. Center-left, center-left, center-right, left-left, right-right. Mm -hmm. Everyone basically views China as, as the great threat uh, to the United States nowadays. Um, the same way the Soviet Union during the Cold War kind of kept the United States very united. And the 1950s and 60s were all seen as these golden ages of American uh, you know, consensus and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, that, that, I think, Charlie, the politics does play a role there. And, uh, but it shouldn't be the reason for the United States to have antagonisms with China, just to create an out-group scapegoat, mm -hmm. you know, to try to create unity within America's kind of, you know, um, very disparate and uh, tumultuous political system. Mm -hmm. um, my personal view is, I think, and I, I tend to agree with Avril Haines, I, I do believe that China, mm -hmm. on its, its own statements, its own merits, its own speeches from Xi, Xi Jinping, um, do want to flex their muscle. They do, they do envision a, a core security zone mm -hmm. that China just keeps expanding more and more further out, you know, 10 miles past the Philippines, then 50 miles past the Philippines. And then all, all of a sudden you're on the doorstep of Hawaii mm -hmm. on, you know, the strategic sphere of influence that China is claiming and threatening a lot of close American allies in South Korea, in Japan, in Australia, in India. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there are legitimate concerns and I don't think it's a partisan issue. I think it's a geostrategic reality. Um, how we manage it is probably, and I think it's a great question. I think we're going to see more of this. Um, I, I, I mean, this is my own personal. If we see Joe Biden versus Donald Trump as the two candidates for the next, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to move to China, you know, and just get out of here for a while. And, uh, 
and then maybe come back when the dust settles, because I, I don't think I could handle another 2020 election uh, again between these two characters. Uh, hopefully, we get a little new blood into the system. And Charlie, if we do, then we're not just going to hear these same old bromides and, you know, socialist, fascist, you know, whatever they're chanting at each other. Um, and they're going to have to actually talk about the issues. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about inflation? What are we going to do about federal spending, mm -hmm. entitlements, mm -hmm. military, you know, building up the military to confront uh, future threats mm -hmm. um, out there? Um, what is the role of China in America's future relationship with East Asia and the rest of the world? Um, the two parties will have to come up with answers. Mm -hmm. And the leaders of the two parties will have to come up with answers. Mm -hmm. And my, our, my experience, our experience uh, as Americans, uh, is they will come up with nuances. They will, they will present a case to the American people, why am I the better commander in chief to lead in this time of, you know, I wouldn't call it dire threat, but you know, rising insecurity. There's, there's a challenger out there for the first time in 75 years mm -hmm. that really does want to take the United States on mm -hmm. as the global leader. And they're in, in the Western Hemisphere. They're very close with the Brazilians. They have a new base in Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, they're close with Venezuela. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the answer to this? And I think that's a healthy debate. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be soft power oriented diplomacy? Is it going to be more hard power neocon oriented? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a Reagan response. Like, see, DeSantis is more in the Reagan model. Mm -hmm. So we, we almost see these, these kind of sides forming. Mm -hmm. I would say if DeSantis gets, gets the nomination somehow, or even someone like you know, Vivek Ramaswamy as a VP, or Nikki Haley even, uh, they're really coming out of a Reagan, a Reagan peace through strength kind of mentality that will direct America's China policy. Mm -hmm. If we get, uh, I'm not saying I, I particularly like this person, but like a Gavin Newsom or somebody steps in and, mm -hmm. you know, or, um, uh, Whitmer from, from Michigan, you know, some, some new blood comes in for the Democratic side for whatever reason. Um, you know, you're going to get a different answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to say, we have to maintain our institutions. We want to build them back into the World Trade Organization. We have to sort of do this cooperatively together. Uh, we'll ask them nicely to stop building more aircraft carriers, but we're not going to do anything threatening to them because if we threaten them, it just leads to a cycle of threats and counter threats. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Republicans would say, no, we have to give a firm stand. You build another aircraft carrier, we're going to build two. That's what a Republican Reaganite would say. So we can easily get mm -hmm. different answers. And on the economic side, decoupling mm -hmm. or de, uh, what, not, what's the new term of ours? Not decoupling anymore because that's too hostile. No one wants to decouple. It's de, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's no, deconflicting is different. That's with missiles, sorry. Uh, um, I think it was, it's a finance term. Yeah, it's so, a finance, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, Someone look it up. No, it, we're, we're, de we're not decoupling our, well, we can't, let me put it this way. It's about, should we totally decouple our, our economic relationships with China? Some real China hawks say it's time to end the economic relationship completely, which some people are referring to as decoupling. Um, de-risking is the term. Yeah, de-risking. So it means that we're going to still maintain our interdependence on our cooperative global trade relations, um, but we're going to de-risk, meaning we're going to protect more of the uh, the minerals and things that are vital for underpinning national security uh, concerns. Um, that's de-risking as opposed to decoupling. Mm -hmm. You can get an economic populist, mm -hmm. uh, Josh Hawley, for example, uh, Senator, um, uh, who literally wants to just go back to the 1990s and prevent China from entering the World Trade Organization, but you can't go back in time like that. Um, you know, so you will see economic populists who never wanted NAFTA. You know, they never wanted trade agreements of any kind. Uh, those are still out there. They're, in the, they're on the Democrat side. They're on the Republican side. So you will get arguments for completely 
nationalistic economic policy that really reverses globalization because the belief is it has hurt American workers, hasn't helped American workers. So you're going to get those arguments uh, about you know, decoupling, and then you get more nuanced arguments about de-risking, where we all remain partners. Um, I think those are healthy debates. How China reacts to either of those is also an important question. Yeah. I think that's most of the questions I had. Were there any other points I see that you wrote down? No, not really. I think you covered them. Those are, those are great points. I guess I'll finish on kind of a big uh, macro, uh, macro point, which is, you know, looking back in history, um, world, the world politics is anarchic. There's no world government. States are the primary actors. We talked about that before. Mm -hmm. We have to take the idea that any of this is personal mm -hmm. out of the equation. One country is strong, another country rises. Uh, equilibriums change, balances of power shift. Mm -hmm. And the interest of countries change along with their power in the international system. Mm -hmm. It's not that they all of a sudden became bad and evil and mean. Mm -hmm. It's that their interests changed mm -hmm. because they got bigger and stronger and they have different ways to leverage their, their power to mm -hmm. improve what they perceive as their national interest. Mm -hmm. And going way back to the fifth century BC, you know, Thucydides, one of the, this great um, the earliest, one of the earliest political philosophers was talking about the origins of the Peloponnesian War, mm -hmm. and he was talking about all these differences between Athens and Sparta, and one, you know, one guy hated, one king hated the other prince, and one elected leader, you know, had a mistress that, you know, that killed somebody over in the other country, and just all these little nuances and personalities and things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost like an e-entertainment story of all these little, you know, hatreds between these two uh, city-states. Um, in, in the Greek islands at the time. Um, so he goes through in, in, in dozens of pages all these reasons why Athens and Sparta went to war. And at the very end of it, he says, yeah, but kind of throw all of that away. The ultimate reason, underpinning, root cause of the war between Athens and Sparta was the rising power of Athens and the fear it caused in Sparta. It didn't matter what the politics were. It didn't matter who the personalities were. One independent city, one independent entity, state at the time, um, that was stable and dominant, saw another one rising up that was more democratic, more liberal, uh, rising up, threatening it. Uh, this is reverse of the China-US rise, but the principle remains. Uh, one dominant power that sort of controls the system sees a rising challenger, and it was almost inevitable mm -hmm. that there was going to be conflicts. Mm -hmm. What isn't inevitable is that it has to lead to a 30-year Peloponnesian War. It doesn't have to. You know, there have been times when polarity has changed. I mean, the United States surpassed the British um, economically in the 1870s and militarily in the early parts of the 20th century, and the US and Britain never went to war. Mm -hmm. You know, polarity changes. Um, I think attitude does matter. I think the more China says, we're, you know, it's China's turn, it's going to be the China century, you know, uh, democracy is going to be in the dustbin of history. Uh, I think the more that, that's, that then becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, but uh, just because polarity is shifting and the balance of power is changing absolutely does not mean that war is inevitable, but it does mean tensions are increasing. Mm -hmm. And a closer eye is being held on both sides mm -hmm. over what in the term of art in my field of international relations would be called relative gains, mm -hmm. relative, relative power. Mm -hmm. Countries are viewing each other in terms of relative power, not absolute power. Mm -hmm. When the United States economy is four times larger than China's, like in the 1980s or early 1990s, mm -hmm. um, the United States doesn't care that China is growing 15% a year. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. That absolute gain for China is irrelevant. US doesn't see that as a relative 
gains challenge. Once China comes up to you know, half and now around two-thirds of the U.S. economy, every increase in Chinese power is now viewed much more closely by the United States, not as a direct threat, but as a potential future threat, because that's more power for, Ch for China to do things. And if it decides to do bad things, it's going to have more power to potentially do bad things. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that has to happen. But it does mean that the two countries are going to naturally be a little bit more like scorpions in a bottle, keeping a closer eye on each other. And the, different, the changes in, in power are going to become more prominent as, as we move forward. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's a very good note to end on. And uh, thank you very much for coming to our podcast. My pleasure. And uh, I think the audience will really enjoy it. Thank good. You. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. That concludes another insightful episode exploring the major themes in China-U.S. relations. We covered a lot of ground in analyzing China's global ambitions, its political and economic model, and the factors that will shape this relationship going forward. Key takeaways include China actively asserting itself while still working within the system, the rigidity of its political structure compared to Western democracies, and the nuanced policy options around security, along with economic and global institutions the U.S. must consider. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode. This is your host, Charlie Du. Thank you for listening.